baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. As the temperature shot up this past week, the scalding heat tested California's electrical grid as never before. And it also offered a clear reminder of the uncertain future we now face in this warming world. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, we're going to discuss the fallout from this record-setting heat wave and also hear why one advocate worries that even after all the recent heat disasters, we're still not taking the dangers of extreme heat seriously enough. It exacerbates existing uh, health conditions. It has uh, huge impacts on our mental health. Uh, it has impacts on our, our educational system and our ability to learn. So it is really one of these full spectrum challenges First up, California's grid pushed to its breaking point. On Tuesday, the week's hottest day, electricity demand across the state soared to record highs as Californians cranked up the AC to stay cool. By the evening, California's independent system operator signaled that rolling blackouts could be imminent. But while some local shutoffs did occur, the grid as a whole managed to squeak by. Still, the close call has raised important questions about the resilience of our electrical infrastructure and how it'll hold up as climate change makes heat waves like this more common. Helping us sort through those questions, our first guest for the program, who we're going to welcome on right now, that's Dan Kamen, a professor of energy at UC Berkeley, who also directs the university's Center for Environmental Policy. Professor Kamen, welcome back to KCBS In-Depth. Well, thanks for having me on. So even in the face of record heat and record electricity demand, the grid did manage to hold. But to pull it off, the state had to turn on some of its natural gas generators. In fact, natural gas reportedly became the primary source of power for the state all day Tuesday. Uh, and that's obviously a step back from California's ambitious climate goals. So uh, taking it all together, Professor Kamen, how would you rate the state's performance over this past week? Well, I would actually say the state has done exceedingly well, in part by design, in part due to some lucky circumstance. But actually, the ramp up of natural gas is not a significant issue in a lot of ways. We have that gas capacity. We are trying to decarbonize. But it's really the clean energy and the smart energy systems that got us through so far this week without blackouts 
So actually what's happened on the grid so far has really been a testament to the power of renewable energy, the power of energy storage and the strength of consumers in responding to a crisis by a delaying high power needs until time in the day when there's more energy. So I actually view this very much as a strong statement that the clean energy future really can work and that we actually should be more aggressive as opposed to less aggressive because clean energy is cheaper and generates more jobs than the fossil energy system that we're replacing. Yeah, well, important, as we mentioned a few times, that this really was uh, record uh, power demand on Tuesday, even exceeding the estimates for how much the day would take up. But there's been some uh, reporting since then that something that seems to have made a really big uh, difference is a text message that I got, and I imagine a lot of our uh, other listeners got, asking residents to conserve power. Uh, in, in, in your view, was, was that pivotal? Did that really make the difference between rolling blackouts and not rolling blackouts? Well, it was certainly pivotal. I mean, if I kind of put the numbers in perspective without boring anybody, the total demand on Tuesday this past week was the highest demand we've ever seen. It was 51,000 megawatts of power. Mm. Put that in perspective. California on a good day in the spring has a peak demand about half of that. And we've had several days in the spring when we met all of our energy demand, 100% with clean energy, with solar and wind and um, geothermal power. This is the time of the year when it's hot, when demand spikes, and again, there's 51,000 megawatts is a peak number. So what happened on Tuesday um, was really indicative. First of all, California has about 8,000 megawatts in addition to that 51 that's so-called behind the meter. It's solar on the roof of homes like mine or businesses. It doesn't really get reported. That cut off some of the peak demand. Then there's another 3,000 megawatts of power that was provided by energy that was stored in the state's batteries. And that is something that didn't exist five years ago. That's the new cool thing on the block, if you will. And then at 5 p.m. on Tuesday, when there were some rumblings that there was going to be a shortfall of about 2,000 megawatts and that there might be these rolling brownouts, um, what happened was the call went out to conserve and Californians stepped up. They, they changed their plans. They didn't run the dishwasher. They didn't run their dryer. They didn't run their grow lights or, or heat their hot tubs. Um, they didn't charge electric vehicles. And 2,000 megawatts of savings were the result. And that collective got us through. So that demand side management or that flex your power alert was absolutely fundamental. But it was part of a package of smart green energy decisions that all happened at the same time. All right, real quick, just going to reintroduce you. This is KCBS In-Depth talking today about the epic week of heat, what it meant for the state's power grid, getting the view from Dan Kamen, a professor of energy at UC Berkeley, also an advisor to the U.S. Agency for International uh, Development. Um, so talking about a few of the grid's wins over the past few days, but uh, California also is facing its share of criticism, and it's coming from uh, a couple of different fronts. I'm going to start with the conservative take on how this week played out. A number of conservative commentators making the point in recent days that, in their view, uh, the electricity challenges of the past week are uh, a sign that California's effort to shift to renewables is 
already on shaky ground. Uh, For example, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal argues that as the state's solar and wind capacity grows, uh, other sources of power like nuclear and natural gas are getting squeezed out, uh, making uh, the grid less reliable when wind and solar become scarce. You know, for example, when the sun goes down. Uh, What's your response to those concerns? Yeah, I mean, I, I disagree with them entirely. And I think not only is the physics and the thermodynamics, but also the economics and the politics are on my side and, and highlight things like that op-ed is just really wrong. And so let me kind of run through why. First of all, California voted last week to keep its one remaining nuclear power plant on. Um, and that's a critical part of the mix. We need that during these times. Um, but interestingly, energy storage provided more power um, during those kind of crises during the past week than did um, nuclear. doesn't mean one is more valuable than the other, but they're both certainly part of the mix. And actually the biggest threat during these extreme events is actually that natural gas and other power plants that require coolant water um, go offline. I mean, we saw that in Texas in their climate, their, their freeze apocalypse two years ago. Hmm. Um, we've seen that in the past when natural gas plants in California and in states that feed us power had to go offline because there wasn't enough water in the Colorado River or elsewhere. And actually renewables are the opposite. And the more that we diversify our energy mix into solar and onshore wind and offshore wind, and that's coming now, and geothermal power, we make our grid more and more reliable. And the other feature that makes the grid more reliable is more energy storage. And so while there are commercial storage facilities like in Moss Landing and in Los Angeles and elsewhere, interestingly, the more we push towards electric vehicles, the more we build mobile storage units into all of our driveways because the battery in your electric vehicle can power as many as five or six homes at once. And if we send the signal to those electric vehicles, if you would like to sell power to the grid at this time of crisis, we've effectively developed a informal new power system that gives us even more reliability. So unlike the Wall Street Journal, all of the data shows that clean energy makes our grid more reliable, also more socially equitable because we're not polluting so much in the area where poorer people live. So I think they're misguided. And I think the clean energy future that does have more jobs than the dirty future is actually a system which meets many economic energy and environmental and social goals all at once. Yeah. Uh, Bringing in some of that uh, other criticism that uh, we alluded to just a little bit earlier, more from the environmentalist perspective, Some folks seeing this use of natural gas as uh, a failure of planning uh, that, you know, we really do want to get to the point where we can go through a very hot day and not need to go to the point where most of our power is coming from uh, natural gas. Uh, Maybe that criticism is unfair. Maybe we're kind of rushing things a little bit, having that expectation. But uh, if, if that is the ultimate goal, what is it going to take for us to get there from where we are right now? Yeah, so this is an interesting point. I mean, you're talking to someone who has helped to write a number of California's laws to both set a target for us to be 40% lower in emissions than our 1990 baseline. That's the that's the year of met of note by 2030. And we just had a bill fail in the state legislature last week 
that would have required us to get to 55% below by 2030. Most of the opposition were conservative and business groups that didn't want to be pushed further. And the irony of that is that the more we push to clean energy, the more jobs that we get, we already employ many more people in the solar industry in the state than in our utilities. And the more we push not only solar, but energy storage and wind power, we will generate more job options. But the other part of it is that our goal on paper today is to fully get off of natural gas and other fossil fuels by 2045. And until we pass legislation to move that date earlier, like some European countries are doing to make it 2040 or 2035, or as I've advocated based on our analysis, we think we could be carbon free in the energy sector by 2030. If we accelerated the deployment of clean energy and energy storage, those are things that we can't be surprised that we're not there today when we haven't yet passed the laws. But the energy analysis says we could be a carbon-free energy sector in California, the world's fifth largest economy, certainly by 2035, and I would argue by 2030. So this is really an issue of planning. And while I'd like to go more quickly, I understand the, the, the reasons that some people want to go more slowly, but certainly renewables have made our grid more reliable and more cost effective than just relying on fossil fuels. Yeah. Well, taking all those points together, I mean, a theme of this particular program is reflecting on the the heat as it becomes more prevalent on this planet, as the world warms up and uh, trying to think through what that's going to mean for California. It sounds like you're saying that even as the heat challenges get worse, uh, we can hope that our grid is going to be up to the challenge. Not just hope. I mean, the sad truth is that as hot as this week has been, um, hottest um, week on record, it arguably may be the coolest or an average coolest summer compared to what's gonna go on in the coming decades. So we're passing on to the next generation, a heated planet and a planet that is particularly thirsty for more energy, more clean energy, water, et cetera. So I think what we're seeing is we need to greatly expand the amount of energy from the grid. We need to electrify everything and we need to diversify who has that energy. So rooftops of housing developments, rooftops of schools, rooftops of businesses, large solar fields, wind in the desert. We're gonna be building during, during this decade a large offshore wind industry that sends us electricity, but also sends us hydrogen, which is energy in a stored form. And it's really how quickly we accelerate that process that will demonstrate how quickly the benefits of going green reach out to all Californians. And that's the challenge that I'm engaged most directly in today. All right. Well, uh, that is the challenge that I think uh, all of us are facing and actually many more challenges as this past week revealed, but we're going to round our conversation out right there. We have been speaking once again to Dan Kamen, a professor of energy at UC Berkeley, who also directs the university's Center for Environmental Policy. Dan Kamen, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me on. listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today in the program, coming off a week of record-setting heat for California, we're talking about some of the ways the changing climate is reshaping life in the state. 
and how we might be able to adapt. Up next, we'll discuss the growing movement to change how we think about the dangers of extreme heat. When most of us think about the natural disasters that are likely to cause mass disruptions and death, we'll probably call to mind things like earthquakes, hurricanes, maybe tornadoes. But it turns out that heat is claiming the lives of far more Americans than any of those calamities on a typical year. So there's a disconnect between our perception of the danger and what the raw numbers are telling us. And our next guest is hoping to help bridge that gap. That would be Kurt Schickman. He's the director of Extreme Heat Initiatives at the Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center in Washington, D.C. Kurt Schickman, welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So while all of us are thinking about heat, uh, set the record straight for us. How far out of whack are our perceptions? How dangerous is heat really? Well, heat is one of these challenges that's insidious because while it doesn't project itself in a very visible way in most cases, although it sometimes does in terms of uh, uh, railways and and melted roads or or unusable uh, airports, it, it is typically not one of the disasters that we see. And yet it is, as you note, one of the deadliest that we face in, a, in an average year. And going beyond just the, the worst case scenario of, of, of death, it exacerbates existing uh, health conditions across a wide variety of different health conditions related to you know, uh, cardiopulmonary disease, renal disease. It has uh, huge impacts on our mental health. It has huge impacts on those that are dealing with or recovering from addiction. Uh, it has impacts on our, our educational system and our ability to learn which affects our lives, not just today, but into the future. So it is really one of these full spectrum challenges uh, that cities and and people face. And yet it isn't one that we've done as much as we could to warn people about and to help help them prepare for uh, what that means, both today in the midst of of an existing heat wave, but also into the future and how we sort of prepare for a world that's hotter and that has more extreme heat days uh, in them. Right. And uh, preparing for that world is something that's going to take a lot of different kinds of work. One form of preparedness that I know you and your team have really been advocating for is better messaging about the dangers of heat. And on that front, California just had a bit of a breakthrough. This past Friday, Governor Newsom signed into law a measure that will create a new ranking system for extreme heat events, uh, similar to the way that we rank hurricanes. So, you know, we could uh, someday soon be talking about a Category 2 or a a Category 3 heat wave. This move uh, makes California the first state in the nation to take such a step. Why is this something that you've been pushing for, Kurt Schickman? Uh, What are you hoping ranking heat waves could accomplish? Sure. Well, there's a couple of really key pieces to this. And the first is it's it, it not just ranking or categorizing days, but really linking our weather and our forecasted weather to the expected health outcomes that, that, that those conditions will have. That's a really key underlying piece to this. And there are, there are many different ways to, to go about that. And, and certainly there are some good examples of that. Uh, what we're, we're approaching it from one particular direction and allowing us to look at the forecast from the weather service uh, out five days and based on our knowledge of uh, local conditions uh, in a particular place, to be able to uh, identify or estimate what the uh, what that potential health outcome will be, and then from there, be able to categorize the severity of that of, of that particular day based on that health outcome. So that might be a little bit different than how we do hurricanes currently, but I think it really grounds uh, the the warning systems in what is the core 
purpose of warning systems, which is to warn people about potential danger in, in the most direct way, which is the, the impact that it will have on their health. So we're doing that in a number of places. Uh, in Seville, Spain, we've actually also looked at the opportunity that when you have multiple very dangerous days in a row that you're, within the category system, we can uh, recommend a name for that heat wave. And the idea there is very similar to how you see with hurricanes. It, first of all, creates a, an identity and a, and a brand, if you will, for that event. So people can very quickly search for it. They can very quickly uh, uh, recognize it as a dangerous thing that they need to prepare for. It also gives authorities the opportunity to say, look, the way we would prepare for a regular hot day may look very different than how we prepare for one of these catastrophic days. So it's not just a public uh, opinion difference. It also allows us to uh, to scale our response and scale our preparations uh, to, with the actual severity of the event uh, in, in mind in a better way. And then after the fact, so this is a lot of the, what I've been talking about is sort of how we prepare for these, these hard heat wave days. But when we think about a, an event like a Hurricane Katrina, Oftentimes we don't even say Hurricane Katrina, we just say Katrina. It creates a, an identity for that event that led to policy change. It led to uh, uh, way, uh, ways that we've improved and reformed our, our emergency response, uh, the way we've dealt with uh, rebuilding and, 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 re and reconstructing uh, uh, New Orleans and, and elsewhere at a national level and a state level. Well, having that, uh, having that name helps in creating that sort of identity uh, for heat because we'll have the same challenges with heat going forward as well. Yeah. So uh, obviously a lot of advocacy going on. Uh, kind of curious, though, you know, we, we already do have uh, quite a number of ways to understand the heat that is going to happen. You know, we have temperature, obviously, and we have uh, relative humidity. Why are those not adequate? Just, you know, watching our morning weather report to see what the temperature is going to be today. Why, why, in your view, is that not doing enough to communicate the risks of heat to average residents? I think anytime we can center our warnings and our communications as closely to how people think about uh, and what they deal with in their regular lives, the better we are. So you're, you're right, Tem temperature is very helpful, but that's not on the only indicator uh, that we need to consider. Even within temperature, oftentimes we're talking about the maximum daily temperature. It's gonna be 97 degrees today. That doesn't always account for the nighttime temperature, for example, mm. which has a huge impact on people's health. So even within something as simple and as understandable as temperature, we may be missing key pieces of data that people need to know about. So the idea is to center people's uh, center the warnings and the data we're providing people around their experience as best we can. Uh, and that will include things like average temperature, which includes day and nighttime. It includes humidity or dew point, or wet bulb globe temperature, as you sometimes hear people talk about now, or heat index, and a number of other factors. But as you get into those other complicated but important pieces, it becomes harder and harder for people to really internalize quickly uh, what, what that means for them. And so that's really the idea here is to uh, use those and, and really rely on those as sort of the, the, the foundation, but to really apply it to how it will affect people in their day-to-day -day lives. All right. I'm just going to remind listeners real quick. This is KCBS In-Depth right now talking about the dangers of extreme heat and what can be done to prepare. Speaking with Kurt Schickman, once again, the director of extreme heat initiatives at the Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center in Washington, D.C., uh, so far, our conversation has mostly centered around the messaging uh, around heat. 
But Governor Newsom on Friday also signed into law other measures aimed at boosting our preparedness. Uh, Some of them had to do with research. Some of them had to do with uh, changing how we build our cities. So uh, Kurt Schickman uh, brought in the focus of this conversation, if you could. What uh, what other sorts of changes do we really need to be thinking about as we try to get ready for this warmer future? Right. So cities and really buildings anywhere uh, can be more thermally comfortable and, and, and help protect the people that, that use them. And that's through very basic and really traditional ideas like more vegetated cover, more, more green space, more trees, more shade. It's also increasing the reflectivity of the surfaces. It can be as simple as lightening the color of a roof or a wall or a road uh, so that that sun's energy isn't just absorbed into that surface and radiated back out at people, but can actually be reflected uh, and, and help keep that surface and the air around it cooler. So these are these are not uh, new concepts. They've been around for thousands of years. There are certainly new innovative, way, innovative ways to do it. Uh, and, and I think that is really the sort of the, the recipe or the menu that cities will be choosing from. And when they do that, there are huge benefits that, that accrue, not just in terms of reduced temperature, uh, but also in terms of other ancillary benefits in terms of you know, managing stormwater, uh, aesthetic value, and all sorts of other things. So we really see that as the, the sort of key transformation that's needed uh, to take our cities into the future as livable thrive, places that can, where people can thrive and, 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 and enjoy their lives and learn and live and work. Yeah. Obviously, the backdrop to all of this is rapidly rising temperatures across the globe, uh, temperature, uh, climate change occurring at a rate that uh, even many of our models did not fully predict, fully take into account. And that is just going to change the way that uh, our summers play out, the way that these uh, extreme heat events play out. They're going to be more frequent. They're going to be more dangerous. And this is just a trend as bad as this past week was that is still going to get worse with time. So in your view, Kurt Schickman, are are you in kind of a a race against time to get this messaging right and uh, figure out how to prepare for all this? Well, certainly the the urgency is is there. It's huge, and and you point out that this is a rapidly changing dynamic system, and we're you know we're facing uh, temperatures and conditions that we weren't anticipating facing uh, for some time. So certainly years will vary, but there's no question that the, that we're probably in the uh, the coolest summer that we'll experience going forward, and and we need to we need to start taking some rapid action around that and. You know, this idea around better preparation, better warning, and that sort of thing is one piece of it. There's more to it than that. And I think there's also how we think about the governance around these challenges. It's a multi-disciplinary uh, uh, challenge across so many different agencies, so many different stakeholders. So how do we start to really bring them together in a constructive and inclusive way to plan appropriately for this? And there's some great examples of where that's happening. Uh, the California legislature had an opportunity to uh, take that up this year and, 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 and didn't. Uh, but that would be one area where there, where not just the early warning systems, but really helping to um, make coherent the response and the planning going forward. Uh, and also just to help local communities, uh, because local communities understand how to address this challenge. There isn't one way to do it, uh, but local communities understand how, they're, uh, how, how to, how to uh, address this and, and what needs to happen in both rural and urban communities. And so providing funding and support to those communities to do those things will go a long way. And so that's also part of this. But you're right. It's urgent. And we need to start doing it yesterday, not just uh, uh, not just for next year. 
Well, there's uh, certainly nothing like uh, the heat wave that we just saw to really focus the mind on uh, this problem. So no doubt we're going to be seeing a lot more action on all these fronts. For now, though, we're going to round out this interview. Uh, We have been speaking with Kurt Schickman. One last time, the director of Extreme Heat Initiatives at the Adrian Arst Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center in Washington, D.C. Kurt Schickman, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 